0: Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. During the month of August, we are revisiting some wonderful interviews, conversations that happened during the last 10 years of the show. This week, we explore loneliness and belonging. But if you're craving a show you've never heard before, join us as a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash thebittersweetlifepodcast. There's a link in the show notes, and you can hear exclusive bonus episodes For as little as $5 a month. We hope you really enjoy this conversation. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I have a special guest with me. Do you want to introduce yourself, since I can't say your name as beautifully as you say it? Absolutely. This is Hala Alian. I love that name. And we we are sitting in a conference room in a hotel in Seattle, as you are on an epic book tour. And there is a waterfall behind you, so if you hear some sort of mechanical water thing going on, that's what that is. is So how many cities have you been in so far? Mm, So I
1: did New York, Brooklyn... Boston, South Hadley, Hadley. Do you know how that's pronounced? Okay, South Hadley. Um, DC, Philly, today is
0: Seattle, yesterday was San Francisco. That's a lot. So she's on a book tour for her debut novel, which is called Salt Houses. But in addition to that, she's an award-winning Palestinian American poet, novelist, and a clinical psychologist. And you've published three books of poetry, I hear. And then this new book, Salt Houses, which is about a Palestinian family grappling with realities of displacement and the question of home, which is... Everyone knows who listens to this is something that we talk about on this show a lot. And I have already admitted that I've started the book, but I haven't finished it. So I don't actually know where it's (laughs) going. (laughs) So I'm going to talk to you from a little bit of a place of blindness here. But let's do it. it. I thought first, as often people have been asking you on this tour, is you have such an interesting backstory of how much you yourself have moved. Mm -hmm. I thought I could set it up beautifully, but I thought I'd let you introduce it instead. Yeah, sure. Okay, so
1: I my parents met and married in Kuwait and my mother, when she got pregnant with me, so the situation in the Middle East is that you get what your father has in terms of like passport. And my father, as a Palestinian man, just had the passe paperwork, so just travel documents. So when she was like eight or so months pregnant with me, she went and visited her brother in southern Illinois. And so I was born in Carbondale. And then we went back to Kuwait, and then when Saddam invaded, a few years later we went to Syria for a little bit waited for my father to catch up with us and then we moved to the Midwest so we were in Oklahoma and Texas and then we lived in Maine for a year and then when I was 13 we moved back to the Middle East and we lived in the United Arab Emirates we lived in Tripoli we lived in a place called Bramana in Lebanon and then I went and did my undergrad at the American University of Beirut home of a lot of expats mm-hmm. and then moved back to the States, moved to New York to do grad school, and I've just been here ever since.
0: Wow, so what was guiding your family in all of those moves? Honestly,
1: I think, you know, it wasn't a family of diplomats or anything like that. I think it was just restlessness. My father is someone who has a hard time getting settled into any particular place. I think it has to do with his Palestinianness, and so we would just be in a place for a couple of years, and it would just itch would kind of start up and my dad would be like, wouldn't it be cool if we moved here? Wouldn't it be cool if we moved there? Both of my parents work in higher education. And so it was always relatively easy to find. This is like one of the benefits, right? Of like degrees and all that privilege. It was relatively easy to find work with like universities and things like that.
0: So what about your mother? Is she that wanderlust type person too? Or? <laughs> nope. It's been, yeah, that's, that has always been a really interesting
1: source of I don't even know if tension's is the right word, but just disagreement between them that my mother, they both kind of process displacement in very different ways. And so my father, I think, started to reject places before they could reject him. And my mother has always had this really strong nesting instinct. Like she loves architectural digest. She loves the idea of having a house and a home and it's the place you come back every year and for holidays. And um, so clearly they are not on the same page in terms of that.
0: Yeah. So you've kind of made a home now at this point in New York City. Have your parents made a home somewhere else or are they still moving around? You know, as we're speaking right now, they're they're
1: putting all their belongings in boxes. My little sister just graduated high school and is actually moving to New York. And so they're leaving Abu Dhabi where they've lived for like five or six years now. And they're going to be moving back to Lebanon for the time being.
0: So, yeah, they're they're still at it. In that initial move at least initial in your life when Saddam invades and you move on was your family fleeing at that point or was that sort of more of that your dad no, wanting no. to wander away
1: no 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 that was definitely not wandering away and in fact my father actually was had to remain in Kuwait for a while after my mother and I fled through Iraq and drove to Syria but that was yeah no they they like applied for asylum in the states and that's how we were able to settle in there
0: so tell me how, how much do you actually remember about that period or how did that affect your family yeah. going forward?
1: I mean, I think it's, it's sort of impacted everybody differently, right? So my mother, like I was saying, has become very preoccupied with this idea of having a home, having a home base, having a place that we can return to year after year. My father and his restlessness, I think. In terms of myself and my, you know, I mean, I think for me and my brother, we both turned to writing and my sisters like that as well. Just a lot of storytelling and art and music and things that kind of transcend physical place and things that can kind of transport you back to places that you feel are more familiar than the ones you're in right now. It definitely led us to becoming closer with each other, but it has left a pretty lasting impression in terms of our understanding that any place can be
0: lost at any moment. Oh, that's interesting. So it's, it's that you may have to give up everything at any time. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of the like catastrophic thinking in my family. Like I have my brother and I, if any of us call and we don't immediately sound chipper, he's just like, what happened? Did anyone die? Like what's going on? Like there's just this assumption that there's always like something that's going to go wrong. And this is from the perspective of like, again, like pretty privileged diasporic individuals. But yeah, there's something about that. I thought seed got planted a long time ago, and there's a generational memory of place and what can happen to it that never went away.
0: So would you say that your family is sort of, I get accused on the show all the time of having a darker view on things compared Mm to Tiffany, who has a little bit rosier of a view. She's my co-host. Would you say that your family has that kind of darker tendency then? I think so. I mean, I think it's, it's, yeah.
1: I mean, it's funny when you were saying darker, I was going to say you mean realistic. And so I would think the answer is yes. (laughs)
0: Listen to that, Tiffany, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think,
1: you know, there's, there's like displacement, there's all sorts of displacement, right? There's like by choice, by circumstance, because of necessity. But yeah, I think there's an understanding in our family that things can and, and have gone wrong. And does that make us a little paranoid? Probably, but one could argue that it's also like there's a self-preservation and kind of being prepared for potentially things going wrong.
0: Right. Yeah. Another question that comes to my mind is because as you as a little girl Mm -hmm. growing up and you're moving from place to place to place, do you think of then your life in sort of vignettes of where you are and how where you are is affecting who you are? Totally.
1: Yeah. I, I'm like, I mean, I feel like I went into psychology on some level because I was so interested in the intersection of, like, identity, selfhood, and and place, physical place, because I'm not the same person that I am if I'm in Beirut. I'm not the same person that I am if I'm in the Emirates. Um, I think growing up, not only would I think of my life in vignettes, I think I also thought of it as, like, these sort of... kind of these, like, external markers of books. So, like, I remember, for example, like books and music and things that I was really preoccupied with in different cities. And so if I ever return to those cities, I find myself, I'll give you an example. Like when I was in Cambridge, I found myself like really hungry to listen to Josh Ritter because I have an association Mm -hmm. between Josh Ritter and Cambridge, not because I've ever seen him there, but just because that's like, that was the music that I was listening to a few years ago when I was in Cambridge. And so I get really hungry for certain things when I'm in certain places and I think it is because I organize my understanding of a place around what makes me whatever it was that made me feel most alive when I was living there or visiting there.
0: That's so interesting. The thing that made you feel most alive there.
1: The most vibrant details that I can remember from a particular place and then I return to it. I suddenly have like a craving for this random thing that I haven't thought about in
0: years. Give me a few more examples of when you say that you're an actually like a different person in Beirut than you would be in Cambridge Can you illustrate that for me? I think, I mean,
1: Beirut's always a good example because it's a place where, talk about a place where anything could go wrong at any time. Um, It's a place where I always feel much more aware of myself as a living being and aware of myself as a mortal being. I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, it's a place that there are like random bombings and assassinations and, you know, And so when I'm there, I tend to be a little bit more, I think, carefree and just laid back and kind of more like life is what it is. And if things happen, they happen. Like, what are you going to do? I take more risks when I'm in Beirut because it's a riskier place. And there's something about it that kind of tugs for that from the person. When I'm in, I'm trying to think of a good example. How about in Brooklyn, New York, where you live now? That's what I think of as my home base. And so I would say I'm probably the most honest version of myself in Brooklyn and probably the most unguarded version of myself because I know where to go for groceries and I know where to go. Like if the subway's not working, I know what bridge to walk. Yeah, I think it's the closest thing I have to a home right now.
0: Do you like yourself better in certain environments? I do. I like
1: myself... I think that's changed. I remember the first few years after I moved back to the States from Beirut for my undergrad, I really didn't like myself in the States, in America. I just couldn't figure out what I was here in relation to the place, in relation to New York. Whereas I'd go back to Beirut and I'd be like, oh, I know exactly how I should talk to people. I know how to navigate the city, both literally and symbolically. And I kind of had an understanding of my place in relation to it in a way that felt a lot more authentic. And that's kind of changed. I feel like now I like myself more in Brooklyn than I would in Beirut because I go back to Beirut and I'm reminded of the ways that I've changed both for the better and for the worse.
0: Is there anywhere that you were where you really didn't like whatever it brought out in yourself in that particular place?
1: I don't have a ton of fond memories of myself in like Oklahoma. And that may potentially be because of the age and the fact that, like, I didn't have friends and I was this really awkward kid who loved professional wrestling and the Weather Channel and Tolstoy books. (laughs) Like, I was a very strange child. And I just don't like I remember feeling like I was not made for that place. And it was I was never comfortable there. It It always felt like a place that just didn't fit right.
0: So there was a poem that you did at the beginning of a TED talk that you wrote that's all about you in different places. Yes. In there, one of the ones you said that I was so curious about was Jerusalem knows what you're capable of. Mm. So what are you capable of that Jerusalem knows? <laughs> Will you tell me? I'm dying to know. I definitely cannot tell you. No. <laughs> I I think it
1: had it had a lot to do with like where I was in my life and where I was in terms of my understanding of myself as a person who was capable of doing things that could be really harmful for myself and be really harmful for people that I loved. And it was right around the time that I got sober. And so I was also like a lot of demons were coming out and I was kind of looking them straight in the eye.
0: What when you mean what you're capable of, was it in a negative way or was it that you can come around? And
1: I guess, I mean, that's a nice look at that a little positive moment that it's a positive spin on it yeah I think in the time it was in a negative way but now looking back on it I guess technically it ended up being a good thing I mean I feel like that's what adversity is right like the times when the ugliest parts of ourselves come out rarely is that is there not a purpose for it and there isn't is there not some growth that comes from it
0: yeah I think it's so interesting in your examination about how a place affects a person, and even just how you describe how you're different in different places. And maybe from a psychological standpoint, since you study psychology, does that mean that something about moving around so much as a young person fractured your personality?
1: I think it definitely fractured my identity, and identity plays into personality. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, I think you you have to acclimate so quickly especially as a young child right so like if when i was 11 i was in oklahoma 12 i was in maine 13 i was in the emirates 14 i was in tripoli like those are vastly different places and there's vastly different norms and cultural scripts and narratives that you kind of have to conform to to fit in and at that age you know especially that like early preteen like fitting in is everybody's so thirsty for that i do think that to a certain extent you learn to Put aside whatever it is that you may want or desire on the most like core, honest level. Put that aside and then focus on how am I going to fit into this environment. It becomes a survival strategy and an act again of self preservation to be able to fit into these different places. So I think it comes along with a skill set that's very useful and certainly has served me well. But it also took me a very long time to unlearn how to just adapt to an environment. And to accept that, like, there are some environments that maybe are not made for me or I'm not made for them and I can look for others. It taught me how to be sort of a chameleon, but I think it also taught me to lie. And it's taken me a long time to unlearn that and to insert honesty into my life in a more regular way.
0: That's something that Tiffany and I have talked about, too, is that notion where if you move to a new place, you can invent yourself into whatever you want to be. And as long as you can keep the lie going, which... Most of the time you can't, probably. Yeah. You you can just be whoever you want. Yes. I, I mean, is that what you, what you mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there's also, you know, to a certain
1: extent, there's lying to yourself about what it is that you want, right? So, like, there's certainly places I've lived in where in order to fit in or in order to be popular, it required behaving in certain ways or doing certain things that maybe didn't align with what I actually desired, but sort of lying to yourself and being like, no, this is what I want. And I do think part of it is that you... You can reinvent yourself. I mean, I was literally, I literally went by the name Holly. First grade until like eighth grade, seventh grade. Because Halla is such a hard thing for this, that strong H sound doesn't exist in English. And people would always mispronounce it and all that. So I kind of anglicized my name as a kid. And then when I moved back to the Middle East, it went back to being Hella. Those are different entities. And they do have different personality traits. And they do have different attachments to their sense of self. I think there is definitely that, like, reinvention that can be really alluring, but it comes with a lot of maintenance. <laughs> it's alright. Right, keep it up.
0: Yeah, so in, in putting those two sides together, this American girl, Holly, <laughs> getting back to that question of personal identity, I mean, it's a question for you and for your family, I suppose, but how do you think of yourself as far as ethnically and, and all that, given the way you've been raised? I
1: think of myself as Palestinian-American in terms of ethnicity i think of myself as palestinian um by like origin by bloodline like that sort of thing my you know both both of my father's parents were palestinian my mother's father um palestinian by way of lebanon so they all like had a lebanese passports and my mother feel my mother you know considers herself lebanese her my mother's side of the family a lot of them consider themselves lebanese because that's they've never been to palestine so their home is lebanon and my maternal grandmother was syrian so that's kind of how I think of it in terms of ethnicity. And then there's the nature nurture, right? So then there's a the nurture piece, which is that I spent a lot of time in the States growing up. I speak English without an accent. I always went to English-speaking either American or British schools. So I think of myself as kind of this, like, little medley of those two things.
0: Mm-hmm. I have to ask, just since you've lived in both places, in the Middle East and in, in the United States, the United States has such weird conceptions of what the Middle East is. Mm-hmm. What one of those bothers you the most?
1: I mean, there's a lot, right? I'm like, that isn't even a fair question. There's, well, I mean, I don't like. I mean, I, (laughs) I, the idea that like Arabs or Muslims are terrorists is not. That's a big one. Not only, yeah, like that's that's not only is it like not a pleasant stereotype, it's a dangerous one, and it's one that costs many people their lives and has allowed Arabs to be dehumanized and used as a justification for a war and for attacks and all sorts of things so I think that's like a particularly dangerous one I do think we live in a time where Reza Aslan I was listening to an interview of his not that long ago where he was talking about like getting the appeal he wasn't supporting it but he was like I get the appeal of Trump for a lot of people where it's like if somebody comes to you and says all your problems I'm going to give them one name and that name is going to be Mexican that name is going to be Muslim that name is going to be Arab." you know that like it simplifies it and I think that there is, that th- for a lot of people, the Middle East, the Arab world is one that is very black and white and very simple in their minds, very simple, very much simplified. And American foreign policy has helped with that a lot. Um, the media depictions of Arabs has helped with that a lot. So I, that's one that particularly bothers me. I also, I mean, I think there's just a lot of exotifying Arabs. And I particularly dislike this idea that, all veiled women need to be liberated and saved and white feminism applied to women of color is something that particularly rankles me. But yeah, I mean I think it's it's like anything and I'm sure this is something that comes up on your podcast a lot is like if you take people and you force them to be face to face with the thing they don't understand, it's very easy to hate something you don't understand. It's a lot harder to hate something if you if it has a face to it and a name to it and you've eaten at its dinner table and I think that's where in my opinion travel isn't just something that people are interested in they should do I actually think it really does it humanizes parts of the world that otherwise don't really have a face to them
0: right and I think that a lot of Americans would be afraid to go to the Middle East yeah and I get,
1: and I you know I kind of understand that like it's I think it I think that is a f- fair thing to be afraid of to certain extents but it really depends on the place I mean I think Beirut is a place that gets a bad rep but it's actually really beautiful and for the most part if you stay in certain neighborhoods like most of Beirut is pretty safe granted like there is always a risk of certain things happening there that maybe the risk is not as high if you're in Seattle say but it's still a super you know for the most part very liberal place tons of expats tons of partying tons of you know all of that stuff that people don't associate with that part of the world but i get it i mean i also think it's it's always interesting to me because a lot of the places in the arab world are unsafe not completely unrelated to things that america's done (laughs) so there's like there's also that interesting relationship between a place being seen as not safe or people that live there being seen as sort of like savages or like not you know really violent and it's convenient like history is very short for some people, like the memory of history is very short.
0: Yeah, Is that conflicting to you being a person who lives here? Here, the United States has caused so many of the problems over there. Yeah. But then you're also from there. Uh, your family's from there. So. Yeah, I mean, look,
1: I love this country. I think that there's... I'm happy to be American. I think it's a, it's a hell of a privilege in this day and age to be American, to have been born here and to have the passport. I think it's really the only place on the planet that i can think of where you can really say whatever you want and again you need the passport for that like it isn't true for like everybody who's on american soil but but i do think that you know if you have certain privileges and you can claim birthright and citizenship to this country it is kind of unlike anywhere else in the world does that mean it's perfect no does that mean it doesn't have flaws absolutely not right but in terms of what we're working with in general, in terms of transparency and being like freedom of speech, there are a lot of things that you get here that you don't get elsewhere. But, yeah, I mean, I, I'm certainly conflicted. I, you know, it's it's hard to be from two different parts of the world that at times feel like they're directly opposed to each other. And I do think there's a way for that kind of dialectical truth to be it's not either or it's both and. And there is a way to kind of carve room for both of those identities, but it requires a little bit more like work. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So, since your family did flee, mm-hmm. I guess we could call you refugees for lack of a better term or yeah. can you, can you? I don't know. It's it's it's, a, it's a hard yeah, it's a hard one to claim. I guess technically yeah. yes at the
1: time, but it, certainly I, I wouldn't want to misrepresent like there's certainly privilege now. Like everyone in my immediate family has passports now, the US passports and my parents have been naturalized mm-hmm. and so there's a different kind of privilege that exists now. I think in that particular time, yes, they were fleeing the invasion.
0: Yeah, it is different. That's why I wasn't sure exactly how to ask it. But even in what you're tackling in the book, are you trying to... What are you trying to do in the book? Certain themes that you were trying to explore... How does it relate? I think I'd be
1: sort of mm, lying if I said that I set out with any kind of agenda or like if it was as thoughtful as that. A lot of it has been in hindsight, looking back on what I've written and thinking about what are some of the things that stand out to me. But I didn't sit down with like, I'm going to explore this. I'm going to explore that. I will say what I ended up exploring intentionally or not are themes of displacement, themes of immigration, the diasporic experience the idea of home and belonging and finding finding belonging in people and experiences and not in places necessarily because that's not a luxury that everyone has like not everybody can claim a place and then just be there for their entire life and a lot of just looking at intergenerational conflicts and the things that arise when One generation of a family is born and raised somewhere where, like I was saying earlier, there are certain cultural values and norms and, you know, social scripts. And then you're raising your kids somewhere where they're totally different. And so you're kind of not super well equipped because what you've been taught and what you how you've been raised doesn't necessarily translate to this new place. And then those kids grow up and have their own kids. And, you know, so that idea of kind of that third culture, like having to create a culture for yourself that combines those two elements so that I'm you know I'm Palestinian I'm American there are elements of both of those things that I love there are elements of both of those identities that I dislike and so I can take what I what works for me and kind of make it into my own culture and by extension of that my own home Mm
0: -hmm. did your mother have trouble the mother and father have trouble parenting you Was there a disconnect there for you uh, from like what they would have been able to impart to you, but then what you actually needed or experienced throughout your growing up years?
1: I think so. I think especially in the States, I mean, I think my parents did a really remarkable job. Like they kind of did the best they could with what they were given. And so again, there was like anglicizing names. They already spoke some English and like they perfected their English and would come to parent teacher conferences, took us to extracurriculars and all that good stuff. I do think, though, you know, this is just what happens with immigrant families. You'd go home and there'd be a completely different life, right? Like, you'd be spoken to in Arabic. You'd be eating different kinds of food. You'd be, you know, watching different kinds of shows. You'd be reading different kinds of books. And then you'd go into school the next day and you'd become Holly, right? And, like, it would be this totally different personhood. Again, they did what they could in that context. But they were also, like, raising two brown kids in the Midwest, in very mostly white neighborhoods, And trying to navigate this sort of new place that they were trying to understand while also trying to make us feel as acclimated as possible. So there was definitely I mean, I'm sure there were there was tension between what their values were and then what the values of like our schools were in our neighborhoods and our friends and our, you know, sleepovers, for example, are not something that is common in the Middle East. Like that's a weird concept of like, why would you go sleep in somebody else's house? people are going to think we don't have beds. Like, why would you go do that? You know? So it's like a very weird idea. And so in the States, I was like 13 when I was able to do my first sleepover because they were just so bewildered by that concept. And I think they were afraid that I was going to get kidnapped. And so like, there's also that fear of, you know, when you're in a new environment, you have a little kid, you're like, I don't know what the codes are here. Like, I remember my mom saying when she first moved, when she first arrived in Texas or maybe it was Oklahoma, yeah. Oklahoma or Texas, she was just like, bewildered and petrified by the number of missing child posters there are because that's not something that happened in kuwait that's not something even now and like when i think about like missing like people don't get kidnapped really you know and if they do they're getting kidnapped for political reasons or they're getting kidnapped by like other family members like it's a very different kind of experience but the idea that like a stranger in a van with candy that that's not something that has arrived in that culture and hopefully won't but so she was just always so afraid to let us out of her sight because she was just like, what is this country where people are just taking children? Yeah. Probably because they're doing all these sleepovers. <laughs> like, right. Just didn't make any sense to her. Oh, um, wow, that's so interesting. Yeah.
0: But then, but then it, I, I, I feel like I just got to circle back. But then you have a, a father who constantly is like, move. Let's go. I've never heard that word. Uh, you have to recalibrate all the time. Yes,
1: yes. Constantly recalibrating, constantly being like, okay, and now this is my new, like, this is my new north, this is my new north, this is my new north, like everywhere you'd go, and it was a lot, I mean, it's a lot, it, again, at the time, it was sort of not the most pleasant experience, as like a 12-year-old who just wanted to stay in the same country as her crush, right, like, that was not, like, a fun experience, but in hindsight, you know, it it is what it was, you know, it was what it was, but, and also, I think it, If I hadn't had those experiences, I probably wouldn't have become a psychologist. I probably wouldn't have kept writing. I mean, I think writing became writing, creative expression, all those things, they transcend, like I was saying earlier, place and space. And so if you have lost sight of who you are, you can open a notebook that you've had for 12 years and be reminded. You can go back to the story you're working on, or you can go back to the poem that you're working on. And that's something that doesn't have to, you don't have to be located physically anywhere to do it. And so I do think that those things ended up kind of coming to fruition in part because of the moving.
0: And how do you feel like memory and
1: story relate? I mean, I think they both serve each other, right? Like I think memory, like I think we tell stories to keep memories of the things that came before us alive. That's kind of my understanding of, of memory and storytelling. And I think a lot of the times the the, like memories are also a way for us to We have to tell ourselves a story to make sense of our memory, which is essentially what therapy is, right? Like you kind of you come in and you're talking with somebody and you end up as a therapist trying to be a vehicle for that story to make as much coherent, cohesive narrative sense as possible. And so you're taking memories and you're taking they're like jigsaw puzzles and you're putting them together to try to create a picture out of it
0: Hmm. and one that the person connects to. And what is the value of them connecting to it?
1: I think they have to connect to it or it also doesn't. I mean, any therapist worth their salt will say, like, you can have what you think are the best theories ever. You can have what you think is the most perfect therapeutic agenda ever. But if that doesn't resonate with the client, then it's not worth anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a difference because then you're just kind of it's this like intellectual masturbation. Right. Like then you're just sort of doing it for the sake of doing it for yourself. But if the person doesn't connect to that's why it's so important for people to like be ready to go to therapy or to be interested in it or to kind of have some volition in that process, because otherwise it's really hard to convince somebody to embark on this like really what is a pretty peculiar journey when you think about kind of all these social codes and scripts that we have as people outside of the therapeutic room. The therapy relationship is a very different one. You know, it's one where one person's going to give a lot more than the other one and one person's going to listen a lot more than the other person. So you do kind of need, you need the person to be willing to co-pilot.
0: Right, right. Because what they're they're trying to do is sort out whatever it is, whatever the patterns are, exactly. where it's coming from.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Is there a great outcome when you're doing therapy with somebody, you know, what are you aiming for? Mm. I mean, ideally, I, I think it depends on the
1: person, right? So like, you know, for some people, they will come in with a very particular goal and trying to think of an example like someone comes in and they have like a phobia of airplanes and they're like everything else in my life is pretty cohesive things are looking good but like I travel a lot and this is something that's really distressing me then you would be it would be much more problem focused and solution focused that to that particular issue but if someone comes in like you were saying and there's just a pattern of certain romantic issues happening or there is a pattern of interpersonal difficulties or stressors or you know there's something that they're always they're always finding themselves in similar interpersonal conflicts let's say that's something where you're probably looking at more of a long call and the goal or the moment that you're like job well done isn't it's a lot more like it's a lot more invisible and it's harder to point at usually in that case it's when the person's functioning improves when the overall quality of life improves when the person feels like they're existing in the world in a way that feels more honest and more authentic and they're connecting to people in a way that feels more um, genuine they're getting things out of their interactions with others and, and and vice versa that would be kind of an ideal place to work towards
0: I don't know how many people you've worked with in therapy where you're actually dealing with people who have had a similar experience Mm -hmm. to you or even just lived somewhere else and have moved home. You know, we've had a lot of people reach out to us that just have trouble in the readjustment. You know, just the culture shock of coming back or whatever. Do you find that there are certain problems that are presented that people who move around a lot have trouble coping with or that they are facing more often than not?
1: I think in my, and this is anecdotal, right? Like I haven't done research on this, but from what I know in my personal life and what I've seen professionally, I think people who've had these sort of fragmented upbringings where there's been a lot of transition, a lot of chaos, I think that a lot of the time you find that those people have, and this is true for myself certainly, have trouble with comfort and with things being quiet and with things being stable, that it's hard for them to trust in It's trust in in lack of chaos, basically, to trust in, for example, a romantic relationship that's actually going along pretty peacefully or a job that's like fine or there's kind of this um, a little bit of discomfort and feeling very unsettled when there isn't something to worry about or there isn't some like bustling around or a new huge transition. It's the quiet moments that end up giving people kind of a hard time getting people to a place where they can be okay with this idea that it's not always going to be chaos and you can let your guard down. It's okay. Like you can let your guard down. And and does that mean that things aren't going to get rough in life later on? Absolutely not. They definitely will. But to try to get people to look at the parts of their life that are quieter than what they're used to growing up that those are places where they can rest and they can kind of put their backpacks down and they can kind of like sit in the shade for a little bit, that it's okay. Those are places that they can maybe replenish themselves a little bit.
0: Yeah. I like that. We just recently, a few episodes back in the past, I don't know which episode it was. We were talking about loneliness mm-hmm. and we've been inviting people, other people to share uh, their yeah. stories about loneliness or how they cope with it. And, We were batting around our own theories about how you cope with loneliness, but from a psychological standpoint, what would you say? I mean, how
1: one should or what is loneliness or what do you mean? How about both? What is loneliness and how should one cope with it? How should one cope? Okay. So I think loneliness is any time that you feel estranged from environment, from others, and from self, right? I think how you cope with it, I will say a probably not very satisfying answer, which is that it depends on the person, right? I think that a lot of the times the best <laughs> best prediction of what will work in the future is what's worked in the past. And so I think when people come in and they're going through like a rough time or they're having a particularly tumultuous time in their life, I'll usually ask them what in the past has made you feel close to yourself? What in the past has made you feel like you're being reintroduced to yourself? And that's usually a good... It'll, it's an arrow that points you in the general direction of where you want to keep unpacking. So people will talk about rereading childhood books that they used to love, right? Or they'll talk about like finding water, being near water is something that like a lot of people for some reason will talk about being very comforted by like taking baths or walking near a river or just like hearing the sound of water, like the water behind us. Or people will talk about art or people will talk about painting or people will say, you know, I used to do photography like 20 years ago and I haven't done it in, like since then, but I remember I used to like that and it'll be like... Do you have access to a camera? Like, do you have access to an easel? Like, do you think we could get some canvas and some paints in your life? Do you, is there a way to potentially reignite things that, so that we can at least, because look, there's not much that can be done about feeling estranged from a place except for time. And that's really the, on it, the tr- like when people are expats or when they, when you move to a new place, truly it's usually time before you start to feel more settled there. Similarly, there's certain things that can be done to try to make people feel closer to other people people like you go to meetup groups you try to like go to the farmer's market you go to random like events go to poetry readings go to art exhibits right but the most for me the most important thing is how can we help you not feel estranged from yourself because that's usually the thing that we can tackle the most easily um and and it and it you know what i'll ask people a lot of the times is like what do you miss about yourself is there a part of you that you feel like you haven't gotten to spend time with in a while and I think usually the answer to that is, again, like it, there's usually good stuff that'll come from that.
0: That's interesting. I, I think that the concept of being estranged from yourself would be something that I would imagine that some listeners would say, well, how can that even be? You know, I am myself. So how can that even be?
1: Well, I think, you know, you can be yourself and kind of going through the motions and existing and we're here and we're talking, and we're drinking the water and we're, you know, and still feel like you're a million miles away from the things that make you you or the things that make you the version of you that you like and the version of you that you feel joy towards and gratitude towards. Um, I think that you can be existing in this world without being lit up by it. And I think that's the difference between kind of living in a way that's really engaged and purposeful and mindful in the environment around you versus just kind of living. And, and don't get me wrong, sometimes we have to just live, right? Like sometimes either to protect ourselves from things that are going on that are difficult or just because that's you can't always be super mindful of everything right and like just like living your life like oh there's the sound of the train and there's the, what a, like that we would be overwhelmed it would be exhausting right so there is there's a merit to also being on autopilot to a certain extent like we can't if we did live super invested in every second nothing would really mean anything you know none of the good stuff would pop out anymore but I do think there's something to be said for, like, can you find ways within your weeks, within your days to just sprinkle just like a teeny tiny dash, just a tiny dash of something that brings you again, brings you closer to your idea of what it is that you are. If everything that was getting in the way of you being happy was swept aside, like what would that person look like? Mm-hmm. You know, ask people to, like literally describe, like, what would you look different? Would you stand differently? Would what would you be listening to? What would you be? Reading? What would you be watching? Like, what would that ideal person look like? And a lot of the times people underestimate how much of that stuff is, is self-determined. You can kind of work on yourself.
0: I do think that another issue that we've talked about on the show a lot is that there is this forward momentum. I'll use me as an example, because everybody knows my story. There was this forward momentum of, I have a great job. I'm going to just work my way up, you know. And this is the script that I'm following. And then, you know, bam, displace it, move to Rome. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, there is no script. Well, I was following it all along. And I think that that is what a lot of people that listen are searching for to either interrupt the script or they have. And what to do with that yeah. now that they realize that they're not following a trail that they have to follow. Well, I think the
1: first thing that I would say to those people is like recognize that if you feel really bewildered and disoriented right now, that's 100% normal. Because it would be strange if you didn't feel disoriented. Because we live in a culture, in a society, especially American society, is very much goal-oriented. It's very much based on this idea that you work really hard and then you have your two weeks of vacation, then you get to mm-hmm. spend those vacation, you have to enjoy your vacation. There's this sort of like... It's the nine-to-five grind, and even people who don't have conventional jobs, there's still this idea of like, you work really hard, you work really hard, you really put money aside for pension, work really hard, work really, like, that it's a very, it's it's a society and a system that rewards obedience, again, to that script, right? And so, when we interrupt it, no matter how wild and spontaneous we think we are, it's normal, if you've been raised in a society that kind of, you know, bombards you with those ideas all the time, it's normal to feel lost. And I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, you you think about how long it takes a child to learn any new skill or think about how long it would take you, for example, right now to learn Mandarin. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a new skill, like learning to live outside of that script or learning to take things day at a time or learning to live in perhaps a little bit more of an unstructured way, which is really hard for people who are more like, Neurotic. I'm super neurotic. I'm super Type A. Like it's hard for me. I mean, this book tour has been like wonderful, but I was just saying to my husband, like I like to be able to run every day. I like to be able to meditate in my like chair every day. I like. I am a creature of habit more than I'd even like to think of myself as. Right. I always remember that when I travel because I'm like, oh wow, yeah. That's why for me at least travel is so important because it disrupts that because it reminds me that it's all, it's a comfortable sham. But it's a shame, and it's a lie, and it's okay. And we can tell ourselves certain things sometimes that are comforting as long as we recognize them, as long as we recognize that they are just, they're paper tigers, and we can kind of, you know, we can kick them over if we need to.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what the title is, Salt Houses yeah. of your book. What does that mean to you?
1: So it was actually called something else, and then my agent was like, this has nothing to do with the book. It was like yeah. a, another title that I was very attached to that had nothing to do with the book. Which uh, was? It was The Carnival Sky. Again, I get it. Like, I get why she was like, this has nothing to do with this. Um, So she, when she signed me, she was like, I'm going to need you to think of another title. And so I did a word cloud where I kind of looked at what words were used with what frequency. And one of the words that was used a lot, unsurprisingly for a book about immigration and displacement, was houses. And then there's a scene towards the end where one of the patriarchs is, um, he's like a great-grandfather at this point. He's looking back on... His life and his family's life and thinking about all the houses and apartment complexes and villas and huts they've lived in over the years and kind of imagines them as these structures made of salt that the tide can come and wash away and that's sort of his metaphor for displacement and so I just put them together and it's, yeah, houses. it's a really nice title
0: and it's a beautiful book too actually the cover is gorgeous and I've only read the first few chapters but so far yeah. I really really like Good. it with that idea of the house that can crumble or be washed away with the, with the ocean. My final question to you is about how you think about physical objects, mm-hmm. having moved so much yeah. in your life. Do you find that you have value in the things that you own or do you just not buy much of anything at all? Like how has so much moving affected you? I actually, the op- it's, I will,
1: I think I feel like most objects are trinkets regardless of what their actual price is. And so I have this relationship with objects where I will get very attached to like five pieces of clothing and wear those pieces of clothing <laughs> all the time. But I'll have much more in my closet. And then every season change, I'm just like, I will give away like half of what I have. And I'll still go out and buy more. But like, I I just don't get, I used to get very attached to things when I was um, younger and when I was a teenager in my early 20s. Things meant a lot more than they do right now. I think right now photographs mean a lot, letters mean a lot. That's kind of it. Like, I can't really think that my teddy bear that I've had since I was like seven means a lot. Like, really sentimental objects, like things that my grandmother's given me. Other than that, I mean, I've lost. I love that poem, The Art of Losing. Like, I've lost. It's such a brilliant piece because it, it it really does kind of map out how you have to lose things that really, really matter to you to recognize that, like, nothing really belongs to you. And that's okay. That can be okay, you know? Um, So I've had periods in my life where I've lost things that were super sentimental, really, really meant a lot to me. Having to mourn those things and move on and accept it was a really painful lesson. But I think it has allowed me now to be like, I'm in a place of luxury and privilege where I get to have things, which is not what most people, like a lot of people don't. That also means that those things, they get to be mine for now. This dress is mine right now. It won't be mine forever, and that's okay. And kind of having a little bit more of that transient relationship to things and to the world in general. Yeah, I think it's it's felt a lot, at least for me, a lot healthier, a lot more honest.
0: Do you feel the same way about people? I used to. I think I have a... mm,
1: it depends on what ring, like what circle of friends, or like like how far the circle goes out, right? So I think in terms of more periphery friends and acquaintances, it's not that I think of, I mean, people aren't like objects. Like I don't think of them as things that you can lose. and It doesn't matter. I do believe now in a way that I didn't before that a friendship or a relationship can end and it doesn't mean it was a bad relationship. Something can end and it can still, you can still find a way to end it that like, pays tribute and honors what you had with the person, whether that was a friendship or a family member or a partner. So I think my understanding of things having to last forever, which is something, an idea I was very obsessed with when I was younger, which makes sense because that was how I tried to find like order in the world. I've let go of that a lot. It's a scarier, again, it's like scarier territory, but it's also more, there's something more liberating about it.
0: Well, wow, it's been fun to talk to you. Yes. Do you want to say your name again? Yeah, Halalian. <laughs> I love the name. It's a, the way you say it. I would say it more like yeah. Hala Alian, which is kind of how it's spelled. It is. Well, that's uh, if that's you're funny. looking it up,
1: And it's all those are English letter. I mean, there's just they're both my first and last name have letters that don't exist in English. So I never fault anyone for not being able to pronounce it. I
0: mean, the way you say it makes it sound like it's a song. (laughs) You know, like a song note or something. And maybe that's what your parents were intending. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, the new book is called Salt Houses. And I'll put a link to your website on ours, thebittersweetlife.net. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. All right. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell.
1: You've been listening to The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. If you'd like to support the podcast, find the donate link at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are used exclusively for the creation of audio content, and every donor receives a handwritten thank you note. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at BittersweetPod, and on Facebook at The Bittersweet Life Podcast. Write us a review and tell your friends about it so we can reach more expats, future expats, repats, travel lovers, and armchair adventurers like you. Thank you.